Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, an award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. And we're back. Sorry for the crazy January schedule. I don't think I could have predicted what has happened in the beginning of this year. We had an issue with the guests having to cancel last minute the first week of the month. Then last week, we did the interview with Alan Bunny, but also I got the flu. So I was down and like I like woke up like Wednesday and I was like, we can't do a show. My voice is absolutely fucking shot. So we had to change things around as well. But we're back today. We're back on regularly scheduled program as well. New episodes on Wednesdays and Fridays as usual. And today is no different. So we are joined today by Mort Dog. If you are not familiar with Mort Dog, he is the lead designer on Teamfight Tactics you're not familiar with team fight tactics he gives a pretty good lowdown of it in the show at some point as well but team fight tactics is a auto battler auto chess whatever you want to call the genre essentially a board game inside of league of legends he actually gave some unique perspective on kind of what the genre is and then how it relates to like collectible card games like magic the gathering and and we also talked a little bit about Marvel Snap since Ben Brode was on the show a little bit ago as well. But Teamfight Tactics is a genre, or is a game within League of Legends, the broader ecosystem of the game. League being one of the big, biggest games in the world from a multiplayer perspective. And been a big player of TFT. I'm not really sure why we hadn't thought about having Mort on before. This is a really enlightening conversation. Joining us as always, though, Prem, how are you? What, what's been going on in your world the past, the past week? Honestly, right now I'm I'm so many things moving parts. Got Genesis this weekend. Gonna record some some auxiliary content, some something new and special. We'll we'll hopefully get ready and and uploaded sometime next week with uh, interviews with people who are impacted by uh, the the Panda and Smash World Tour situation. So. A lot of lot of things going on right now, but it was it was fun to have have Mort Dog on as someone who I I play TFT because it's it's like a very mentally engaging game. Yeah, but oh my god, when you when you get that good combo of whatever that character is with, with whatever that item is, and you steamroll, it's just as satisfying as any of the other games I play. So. Yeah, I'm glad we we brought him on. I'm I'm kind of I am also surprised that we hadn't really floated even the idea of, of of bringing Mort on until until this week. Yeah, I think we I don't know. For, speaking personally with myself, I cover Riot the the obviously the dev that he's from so much. It's almost easy to overlook like how big of a company they are, how many people are doing like very innovative work there, and he like definitely chief among them, leading basically an entire game within a game. You know, I think that and I, I play a ton of it, too. Like TFT is one of the, my most consumed games. It's it's nice because like that he, he t- talks a little bit in the interview about like the dexterity needed to climb in something like League. Like it takes some time to kind of shake off the rust in something like League of Legends. And so like the actual base game, it's not I do play it, but I don't have as much time to play it anymore. And so I'm not kind of the same that I used to be. It's nice to go back to TFT where it's like, my brain doesn't change. I have a good yeah. like understanding of the entire time and I can get back into it pretty quickly. So Man, uh, yeah. I, I think I could if I played ranked in TFT, I could probably get to platinum. If I played ranked in actual in, in Summoner's Rift and normal league, man, I'm not getting out of silver nowadays. <laughs> I'm yeah. old. Yeah. I haven't played that game seriously for far too long. But like yeah, TFT, I feel like and this is this is true of of TFT in, in particular with how how drastically the meta changes every six months. If I leave and come back, it takes a week, week and a half to kind of understand the the mechanics of the game. And at which point, I'm I'm just optimizing, and it's constant, yep. really, really rapid feedback growth. Like it's it's a very clear learning process as you improve and and better understand how the game works and and how to win yeah it's it's one of those games because of the way that it works it's like when something shits on you when something's so much better than you and it like just beats everybody ham-fisted in the game like you're like oh that's probably the strong thing right now in the game so 
you get a pretty good sense to your point, like of kind of where things shake. I think it's I I have a bad tendency of like jumping straight into ranked at the beginning of a set and not like spending <laughs> enough time on PBE or in normals to learn kind of what what is the meta at the moment and what works. But nonetheless, uh, it it was a good conversation with Mort. I think it's. He's in a unique position, very different than a lot of the other designers in games as well. And and I'm, I'm also just excited for him. He talked about, you know, more broadly, the TFT team scaling up. It seems like they they got a little bit more budget and been able to hire a lot more people as well, which makes things a little bit easier. So uh, we'll, I, maybe we'll see something a little different with TFT as well. It's, it's also like it was such a unique position as a game. I wrote a piece about it in 2020 for ESPN where I was like basically playing it nonstop on my phone because I was in the middle of moving out of my New York apartment. And so I didn't like, I had my computer all boxed up and I couldn't really play much anything else like the PS4 and the, and the computer were in the boxes. And so I just played a shit ton of TFT on my phone and it's, I think it is Riot's most successful mobile game. I don't think Legends of Runeterra or Wild Rift are as successful as TFT on mobile. That's, that's an assumption, but I, based off of my understanding, that would probably be correct. So. Yeah. Yeah. I will say the one thing that I feel like everyone just completely disregards is that TFT is not the second game Riot has published because they had League of Legends turret defense in like 2012. And man, it was a basic turret defense game, but we got You got to respect it. You got to respect your elders on that one. I feel like yeah. everyone sleeps on, on turret defense. And uh, what was the other one? The Blitzcrank Poro Rescue. Oh, right. Yeah, they've, game they've had adorable. some unique game, game modes. I I do miss Dominion. I do miss Twisted Tree Line. Dominion's the tower defense yep. game you're referring to. I'm, I miss both. They were actually really, really fun. I have a former colleague who literally was like the biggest Dominion streamer for a period of time as well. And, and he was like, yeah, like always wanting... He would like run Dominion tournaments and all sorts of stuff. So... Granted, all of those kind of still feel like League of Legends. They're still the same oh, controls, yeah. etc. Whereas TFT is completely a different thing with a different mechanic. It, nothing is transferable. But um, yeah, nonetheless, it's good to be back. Thank you, everybody, for kind of sticking with us if you're here on AOD. I will say something we're, we've been really excited about recently is The Last of Us, which came out on, on Sunday as well. The yes. new HBO series. Very good. If you've not watched it, you don't need to have played the game. So if you're listening to this, you're not a PlayStation player. You've not had a chance to get your hands on it. Enjoy it. I've actually talked to a lot of friends who don't have PlayStations and, you know, they're exclusively PC or Xbox gamers and they, uh, yeah, they've dove into it and they've really enjoyed it. So it's, that's, that's on HBO Max. That's not even a paid plug. We've actually really liked it here. It's, I I watched the first episode today and it's fantastic. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's really it's pretty pretty freaking incredible. I mean, I think in terms of the the way in which it it can potentially engross an audience into to coming to the game or like kind of digging more, I think it's up there with Arcane in terms of like sheer quality at the moment. And right. like I, I yeah. think Arcane is 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 very much the like masterclass in how you build a world in such a way that People don't need to have any understanding of the lore of the game or like the history of the game to enjoy the content. I think The Last of Us is is even on its first what hour and a half, yep. it's doing that in strides. Well, one thing it did really cool, and we won't spoil, but the the I will say the the prologue to the episode is the same prologue as in the game, mm-hmm. almost shot for shot in some instances, and I think the show did it better. I think like with, you know, granted that prologue was written like the original Last of Us came out in 2013 and it's based off the first game and some of the DLC. Yeah, it's been a decade. And so obviously they've had a decade of learning to put into storytelling and like cinematography and everything else and like writing for television. I think it did the prologue better. So uh, we'll we'll leave you guys with that. We'll jump into the interview with Mortdog. Thank you all again for listening and uh, super glad to be back. Super glad not to be sick anymore. So without further ado, here is our interview with Mordog. How how's it going, Mort? It's good. It's good. You know, busy days, balance patches, future sets, but you know, 
just a, a normal day and it's good. Things are things are good. What is the sort of I guess like because you create content, you are front facing as well. What is the the balance here between what a day looks like for you in terms of like how you're prioritizing what you're working on and how you're spending your time? Yeah, so my current role is sort of as the gameplay director. The TFT team has been growing a lot lately. And so for a lot of our other stuff, like, you know, future facing or team organization, we've got a lot more people now. So basically my job is the short version I always say is make sure the game is fun. So right now my day is basically focused on like the state of the live game, how the next mid set's going, how the next set's going, working with all the set development teams. And then I'd say 20% is like cross coordination with some of the other leaders, things like team management, stuff like that. So that's kind of it's, it's spread pretty thin amongst a bunch of things. But the core focus is, is the game fun. And how, how big is the team at Riot now working on TFT? So up until recently, we were pretty small. You know, I'd say like 40 to 60 based on like the last few years. But recently, the TFT team has been exploding in growth. We've almost doubled in size. We're still growing even more. So the team's getting pretty big now because we're kind of investing pretty heavily in TFT now. And a lot of, a lot of cool stuff on the horizon. So the team's getting real big. And the for those maybe unfamiliar, some of our audio on demand listeners that will listen to this later maybe aren't familiar with the game itself. At its base core, can you kind of explain the tenets of what Teamfight Tactics is? Yeah, so Teamfight Team Fight Tactics is an interesting strategy game where your job is to build up an army. So you buy units from the shop with your money that you get each turn. You try to build the best team you can. The more expensive units are stronger. And each turn you can place them three of the same unit they power up and so there's that little bit of like chance element of like ooh, if i can get nine of the same unit then i can get the big special three star so there's that kind of exciting of like what comp am i going to build this game every game ends up feeling pretty different so in a way it's sort of a, a very skill-based slot machine playing around random in a, in a very fun way so and I think part of the reason I wanted to bring you on the show, because, you know, you, we were saying earlier before we went on air that you hadn't done a whole lot of press before, which is a little bit surprising to me. I think the other thing, too, though, is is, you know, this is a genre. There are other competitors in this genre, but the TFT has kind of stood the test of time. And I think part of that staying power is what you're building in, which is League of Legends, one of the biggest multiplayer games in the world. Going back to that. You know, you mentioned that you weren't a part of the team that started development on the game, but you joined it prior to it launching. Is it daunting to to kind of work within the League universe, given how big the game is and the success of the League of Legends, the main MOBA and being something sort of attached at the hip with that? I wouldn't say daunting. If anything, I'd actually say it's like think of it like a canvas. It's like you've got all these different brushes to play with. You know, any particular set, we use about 58 champions of the like 160 and so it's like, you know, if you're if you're making a new set, think of it like a painting. It's like, what brushes do I want to use this time? And there's so much you can do. You can kind of dive down deeper rabbit hole. One of the fun things I really like is that we can take champions that like aren't really that popular, like say a Rek'Sai or an Ivern, and we can do some really cool things with them. You know, we can make them four or five costs and do really wacky things with them. And so kind of it's it's really exciting, actually, to just be able to like have so much to work with. And for a game that really needs novelty and unique experiences to thrive, having that much to work with is like really awesome, where I think a lot of other uh, IPs might actually kind of struggle because it's like once you've used all the cool stuff, what's left, you know? Well, that's an interesting challenge to actually somebody I can draw a parallel to. We had on this show a few weeks ago, Ben Brode, who is the co-creator of Marvel Snap. And obviously, like you, he's kind of working in a built canvas and a big one, though, because Marvel is like this very like content rich IP, you know, more than 100 years, basically, of comic book stories at this point that he can tap and draw from. But, you know, in a way, like it, it can be limiting. I understand League is really, really big. But do you ever feel like it's constrained in, in what you're doing and, and making sure like, for example, like making sure that, you know, you're not using the same ability from a champ every single time and innovating on things like that? So not yet, but I will say we're starting to get there. I think there are certain champions that are going to like lend themselves well to big flashy spells and certain champions that aren't right. We're probably going to never make Braum the big shield guy, your big star caster that does a ton of damage, right? We still have to be true to the characters the other thing we're kind of finding is like 
you know, how many times can you put Poppy, the little dwarf or the little yordle with the hammer as a one cost before it starts being repetitive? You know, so we're starting to see some of the like the limits of that. But at the same time, we've also been starting to go outside the bounds. There was a set where we had Silco from Arcane that League yep. didn't have in the dragon set. We made our own dragon. And so, like I said, while there are some limits, we're also finding ways to kind of break those limits. And so, again, honestly, not really. It's actually I think there's still a lot more we can do. And I think we still got a lot of ideas up our sleeves. Well, I feel like some of it can also be kind of goofy, right? Like the yep. I'm thinking about this set in particular, like, you know, Chogoth having a Velkas's uh, ultimate yep. ability come, come out of his mouth. That is not something that's it's not a weak thing at all. So. Yeah. One of our set designers, because, again, the theme was like monsters attack, you know, the sort of traditional like Godzilla kaiju kind of thing. And there's always that, you know, Godzilla shooting the laser or whatever. And that was kind of what they were going for with Chogath. And so, again, to kind of be able to create that on our own and just kind of break the rules was like, yeah, let's do that. And, you know, it actually kind of works. So, you know, I find that interesting that, you know, the the interesting thing about TFT, about auto battlers is how successful they've been on mobile. Like you, you all are, you know, have been in the charts a handful of times too on TFT. How how do you think people are finding the game at this point? The people that are finding it on mobile brand and maybe brand new versus the people that are hardcore league people that are giving it a shot because it's in the same client as League of Legends. How do you look at discovery of the game? Because I think that impacts player experience pretty significantly, I would guess. Yeah, I think you know we're still in kind of that phase where we want to find the right way to grow even more. But for now, what we've kind of been focusing on is making sure that our core audience, people that are going to enjoy TFT, are really happy. They've got the content that keeps them engaged. And then from there, it usually ends up being a lot of word of mouth. You know, it's like, oh, have you tried TFT? That's really cool. Give it a try. You know, we don't really do that much marketing. I mean, there's a little bit, but not a ton compared to, I think, other games. Um, But that word of mouth can be really strong. And again, as long as we can keep that core audience engaged, I think there's a lot of trust that ends up getting built. And so it's like, yeah, if you want a game that's not going to let you down, get, go play TFT. Do you th- like do you have sort of data, though, and thoughts on on how people are finding the game? Because, I mean, a download is a download on mobile. So I'd be curious if you like kind of understand who's experiencing League of Legends and the League of Legends universe for the first time as TFT is that gateway into it versus the people who are like long time people myself. I've played the game for more than 10 years, right? Yeah, I mean, came along somewhere. in Right. Like League of Legends is a big game. It's been around for, you know, 13 years. And so the number of people who have tried League of Legends is a pretty large percentage of the population. And so the odds that someone has never played League but is going to play TFT is just mathematically there are less of those people out there. Now, that being said, yeah, we do have some data that shows it's certainly not none, right? Things like Arcane were pretty big. Um, Things like you said, like League of Legends wasn't really on mobile until Wild Rift. But like you said, it shows up in the shop sometimes or it shows up on the charts. So that's where we get some of those trials and those definitely help. But again, the big part of it is that League of Legends IP that so many people are familiar with. So walk me through the creation of the game, because in the media that you have done before interviews, et cetera, I haven't heard a lot about that. I know you weren't a part of the team when the project first started, but as much as you know, like from talking to your colleagues, people that you work with on it, how did this start? How did the development of TFT start? Yeah, so we've talked about this a little bit in articles, but just to to be clear. So originally there was a, a Dota mod called Dota Auto Chess, and it wasn't that popular. It was starting to gain traction, especially, I think, in some Asian uh, countries. But generally, it was pretty niche. And a lot of rioters had started playing it. And they were like, wow, there's some there's something really cool here. But there was also a lot wrong with it. And it was like things like their usability was really rough. And so I think a lot of people looked at that and were like, hey, we could take this and we can, you know, put our spin on it, put our IP on it, and make it even better. And so that was when very quickly a couple rioters got together. There was some debate around whether we should like do our own game, like start our own or use the league engine. That was probably the biggest hot topic. Decided to go with the League engine so that we could get it out quicker. And then the team was quickly put together. And what was probably the most interesting is that that team was like, their their target was efficiency. So they were actually sort of like siloed. We always joke it was like in this back dark corner. It wasn't actually that dark. But, you know, and that team, it was like, don't bother them. They're trying to make TFT go, go, go. And some team of some of our best designers and uh, engineers were put together, some artists. 
and they got it done really quickly. There's some good articles you can find online that show some of like the prototype screenshots. But yeah, and so we got it out pretty quick. From launch or from building to launch, how long did that process take? I think it was like five months, four or five months. It, like I said, it was really fast. So getting it, getting it out there and then getting it on PBE. And I'll always remember that PBE where just like it went nuts because in a way it was Riot's first second game because we had launched just before Valorant. Wild Rift hadn't been out yet. And so like we got a lot of the like, holy crap, Riot's shipping a second game. And so that PBE was pretty insane. But yeah, like I said, I think it was about five months. Yeah, I was actually just about to follow up on that because I think that is something that's really, really interesting about what you all have done is you kind of were Riot's second game before Legends or Terra before before Valorant. And it is. Did you feel like the pressure of that when you joined joined the TFT team and started working on it? Did or was it more so you thought? I guess the second part of that, too, would be did it did the launch, you know, exceed your expectation of how many people would be vastly interested in what you were doing? Yeah. So, I like I said, I joined about three weeks before we shipped. So we didn't know quite how big it was going to be. But I felt a lot of pressure because, A, I wasn't the original creator. And so I was like, I kind of was like, I need to prove myself that I deserve this position. But also, yeah, it was like we have to live up to League of Legends. And I think. On the company side, you know, Riot kind of only had one bar, right? That bar was you got to be League of Legends. And so anything short of that is like, well, you're not quite living up to expectations. And it's like, oh, man. So, you know, the, the expectations were very high. So definitely a lot of pressure. But I think that's actually kind of what led to some of our success as well is like everyone on the team really wanted to make the best game. So that ended up paying off pretty well. You know, other than the sets themselves, obviously, and for those unfamiliar with Kinect, the game the game refreshes every six months or so with brand new characters, brand new abilities, you know, different themes. The other thing that Moore didn't mention earlier is in addition to the units, there are synergies. So each unit has two, sometimes three different yep. synergies and how they play together. So you're incentivized to kind of build these teams together cohesively. Right. That's the, the other mechanic of this genre in this game. It, one of the other things that, you know, I think with TFT is is it has been League has changed a lot since it came out in 2009. Uh, very, very different than the experience that it was back then. It's still a MOBA. It's still, the you know, the three lanes and the jungle in between. The, you know, the yep. monsters have changed a little bit, but the, the, the mechanics and the thoughts are kind of the same. Um, but TFT has been... I don't want to say stagnant. It's not, but it it is sort of the, the sort of the same game that came out four years ago. And does have you thought about other ways to kind of change change the game without massively overhauling it as well, outside of just the sets? Yeah, for sure. This is actually something that's on our mind a lot because, again, as I said, I think TFT's success is about novelty and new experiences, right? If like if you come back and everything feels the same, you're like, yeah, I've kind of seen it before. What you're looking for is those like new, unique experiences that, that kind of excite you. It's like, oh, what's this underground? What are these payouts? Um, Augments was actually a, kind of our big first like, wow, OK, this really changed TFT to some extent. I think TFT before Augments and TFT after Augments are a different beast. And so I think right now, actually, one of the things we're looking at is like, OK, well, Augments are cool, but eventually it's like, OK, I've seen Augments what's next right and so right. for us to be a game that's going to be around for 10 years or 20 years it's like there's going to have to be those kind of big innovations and those aren't the kind of thing that you can just like put on a roadmap and be like well we know we're going to need an innovation in 2024 so get on it right it's like the kind of thing you're gonna to have to find through trial and error and good discovery uh and so that's something we're always kind of on the lookout for but especially more recently and that's the other thing too is like as an auto battler, it's not a genre that's been around a long time. We don't have a ton of comparisons. Oftentimes we've been looking to like Magic the Gathering is kind of our like closest analogy. So we can kind of look at like their life cycle and sort of see where their needs were, what the strengths are and how we can sort of learn from that. But in a way, we're kind of pioneering our own sort of learnings and what we're going to need. And so definitely something on our mind, though, for sure. Well, that's the other part, too, is the genre feels like it. 
it didn't evolve as the way that some people maybe thought it was. I remember in 2019, a lot of people were really excited that like auto battlers were going to be the next big thing, similar to battle royales, which were the the big thing before that. Um, there are other auto battlers, certainly none as successful as you all. I think you all take take the cake as as the the most successful and most played of the bunch. But there haven't been any, at least as many AAA auto battlers that have come since. Did that surprise you that the the genre didn't evolve as maybe as much as people anticipated three years ago? A little. I think the big struggle that stops a lot of companies from really investing in it is, I mean, at the end of the day, video games are a business, right? And so we could have yeah. all the hours in the world, right? We could be the most popular game. But if there isn't a great way to monetize players, then businesses, especially companies that are more business oriented as opposed to, say, gameplay or player focused, may not be as attracted to the space, right? And I think we saw pretty early that like as a per like hour to dollar that the auto battler genre just wasn't quite as successful as say the shooter genre or the MOBA genre. Now that's not right. to say it's not successful, but again, if you're trying to like, if you're a game company and you're like, where do we get the most bang for our buck? Not sure why you would go auto battler over shooter, for example. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the, the, I mean, I, I like the battle pass system that you all have instituted in TFT. I find value in it. I also, Similarly, other games that have very similar where the ranking up, et cetera, of it. And Marvel Snap has that now, too. Apex Legends has similar. You know, it's not. It's not exactly like the League or the Valorant type or the League or the Valorant type system where you are paying for cosmetics on a whim, right? Kind of as you need them. I, I do like the Battle Pass and I like that it's kind of evolved and changed, too. Yeah, I, I mean, I think TFT doesn't have necessarily the most innovative battle pass, but the thing we focused on, like you said, is value, right? It's like for $10, you get a lot of good stuff. You feel pretty good about it. And we also made the bar to completing it pretty low. It's not the kind of thing that you have to like turn your life into TFT to finish that battle pass. And so there's a strategy there that isn't necessarily the most aggressive when it comes to monetization, but we felt it was right for our players because again, we don't want TFT to be this game that you feel like you have to play four hours a day, five days a week. We want it to be something you can come and go and play for a bit and then not for a bit and then come back. And like that was kind of really important to us. And so, again, that strategy might not fit for a company that like really needs to get that bottom line. Yeah, it's nice to have the uh, sort of, I guess, the riot flexibility, right? Like they're, they have other games, other verticals that that. Yep. uh <laughs> have a lot of money spent against them and a lot of money in return revenue needing to be generated. I would, yeah. And, I would, and yeah. to be clear, I'm not saying we're not successful, but again, it's like, if you compare us to like the S tiers, we're not at that level. And I think that's, you know, if, if, if we're the peak, maybe you want to bet higher, you know? Fair, fair. I find, uh, where do you find inspiration in what you're making right now? And uh, you mentioned magic, looking to someone like them and kind of what they're doing. But where where are you finding that inspiration of like what is next outside of just your own bubble and the people you're creating with? Yeah, uh, it's interesting because I think a lot of the team finds it in different places, right? Um, this can be from things like television shows for theming of the sets. Um, this can be uh, other games. Roguelikes were a big one for me for a long time. Mm. Things like Binding of Isaac, Slay the Spire, you know, any of those like roguelike games were a big thing for me from like 2016 to 2021. Um, you know, so it's a lot of stuff like that. This might be weird to say, but often I actually one of the things I, I do for learning is I'll go to Vegas like once every two years and just play every slot machine for like a little bit just to kind of see what their core mechanics are. Because there's a lot you can learn from just like the presentation and the excitement and stuff like that. I'm still a console gamer at heart, so I still play a lot of console games. Um, but yeah, and like it's nice because we've got so many team members now that everyone's got different inspirations. We've got a, a designer who's been playing Factoria for for so long and building a thing, and like that's his inspiration. And so yeah, yeah, it, it's that's why it's also good to have a bigger team now as we get a lot more input. So. Yeah, and how do you determine kind of wh where you're going? I think that's something we've not actually covered a lot on the show that I think our audience would be interested in is determining strategy for building a game. Yeah. And and where you go, building that roadmap and like, yes, collectively taking everyone's input, but ultimately deciding where, where you go. Yeah, so this is a thing that, you know, I mentioned the team growing, that this is something we're getting a lot better at. We've gotten now a new layer of leadership that's basically focused on that, like, what is that three-year plan where are we going to be in three years? Where are we going to be in four years? How do we get there? 
Uh, and so that's been kind of nice because they can focus on that and sort of go, okay, here's where we want to be in four years. Then it kind of comes down to my level and it's like, okay, well, if that's where you want to be, here's what we'd need to do to, to do it, right? Here are the kind of sets we need to produce. Here's the type of mechanics, things like that. Um, and so we can then plan that out and be a little more forward facing. Whereas before, for the first two years, we were basically like, stay, you know, trying to stay afloat, right? It was like, okay, we just finished a set. We know we need another set. Go, 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 go. You know, what can we do in six months? And so it was like kind of trying to stay afloat. This is the first time in basically for the first, you know, for the first two years, it was chaos. This more recent year, it's been actual organization and like long-term planning. So, Yeah, that's uh, that's fair. I, I can imagine too, it is some, I mean, I'm sure we're leaving now to have a bigger team as well, considering like, I mean, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I understand right? <laughs> running, running things lean, even with 40 to 60 people on something as big as y'all are working on seems extremely difficult. So it, it's definitely better in the long run and it'll definitely make the game better. I will say personally. So when I was at Nintendo, it was a team of like 40 and 45 and every project I've worked on has been like 20 to 40 people. This is the first time I'm on a project that's like starting to grow bigger than those numbers. And so the weird thing for me is I'm always used to like kind of knowing what everything is going on and we're getting to a size where that's just not feasible. I can't possibly know what cosmetics is planning a year down the road while also managing the sets we're working on while also like it's just impossible. And that's been a weird thing for me to get used to. But again, for the game, it's, it is a better thing. And I just have to kind of turn my brain off and default to trust They're like, ah, oh, they got it. It's fine. You know. You mean you're not a tyrant like Reddit makes you out to be more? That's uh, you're not you're not the tyrant designer. Uh, you know, you know. No, if any if anything, I've been I've been often so I give harsh feedback, but I often don't bring down the hammer. I'm like, look, you can do this, but I wouldn't, and here's why. You know, and so sometimes I actually need to be a little more tyranty. So yeah, I'm I'm just giving you shit. I think that some of the some of the people on the forums, like it's uh some oh, of the people yeah. on Reddit and elsewhere. You were talking about first time chatters earlier oh, on Twitch yeah. too. Like, yeah, your game sucks. Uh it's uh it's the usual. It's the well, like and the nice thing yeah. there is like I would rather people be mad at me than be mad at the team. I think we've seen through through other games, right, that like if that hate spreads, it can actually do kind of harm to your team. I'd rather funnel all that and just like you want to be mad, be mad at more dog, it's fine. So do you feel like as as a public figure, like has it taken time to build that shell? Like where when that that first started, when more people got to know who you are, you know, obviously you create a lot of content, you make yourself accessible. Like we were saying earlier, one of the more accessible game devs, especially one that is in a position of power. Did did you do you feel like it took you time to sort of build up that confidence to be able to shrug some of that off? Yeah, for sure. In fact, even the first year of TFT, I had some pretty big blunders. Uh, where like players would say something negative and I would kind of like get mad about it. And I was like, why would they say that? Oh, those idiots. And like, I even remember I had one altercation with a, a player named Kuhn where I, I called him a spoiled little blank. And, you know, it was like, it really wasn't the best act. So it took me a while to actually kind of build up the relationship with the community. And as far as like my position to really understand sort of what my position is and what I'm supposed to be doing and, you know, letting players be mad and that's okay. And so I, my first year, I was pretty rough at it. I kind of look back at it and cringe a little bit sometimes of like, what was I, what was I doing? There. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I was new to it, right? Like now I've been, I think I've been streaming for like 40 months now. So it's like, I've been doing it a while now. But yeah, those first few months, it was like, it took some learning, right? And we've seen other public figures crash and burn. So I've always had to like tread that line, but it's not an easy line to tread and it takes a lot of practice. Well, the one thing, too, is like TFT is extremely content driven. I feel like a lot of the a lot of the people who pro or not just high low, like a lot of the people that are super into TFT, I would guess that the majority of their revenue comes from content creation uh, and what they're doing around the game as well. And you're you're in that boat, right? You're creating content yourself and managing content. And so. In terms of that, we, we were talking a little bit earlier about the balance. How do you balance that with the responsibilities you have of building the game? So that's a that's an interesting one, because I, I've brought this up a couple times that, you know, I, I made games at Nintendo and I made games at Riot. And like as a designer, my job was make the most fun game possible, period. Like that's all you cared about. But recently there's been this secondary thing where it's like 
people expect, well, not only do you have to make a fun game, but we've got to be able to make a living off playing your fun game. And it's like, wait a minute, what? That was never part of the agreement. We're just trying to make fun games. So that that has been interesting, right? And I think a great example of this is like the frequency of balance patches, right? Because if you balance too often, I think players who, you know, aren't playing seven hours a day or 12 hours a day are going to be like, yeah, the game's changing too much. Meanwhile, your your content creators who are playing, you know, 60 hours a week are going, okay, I'm ready for the next thing. What's up? And finding that balance, you know, is something we have to keep a very close eye on. But trying to play it from both perspectives, right? It's like sometimes I'll play as like a content creator and sometimes I'll just play as a, a normal player and try to get those wide perspectives. And it's important to just have a good variety of those perspectives so you can understand them all. But yeah, it's definitely not something I was used to in the the pre-riot days. So, Well, the other part of that too, I went back and read your blog from about a year ago about mm-hmm. the expectation put on the developers about rank, right? Yep. And it's, yep. I remember this at the beginning of League. I got into League, I played it for the first time, I think in 2010. I got really into it as a player in 2012 and I've basically played every single year since, at, at least like 100 games. Mm-hmm. And so... I remember back then that people were hyper critical of Riot devs around what whatever they were ranked so much to the point where like a lot of them used like other gamer tags that they were not using on social media because they didn't want to be like tracked down by the player base and kind of harassed. Yep. And, you know, I was so I was reading your blog and I understand that pressure. The as someone that's the lead designer, I think everybody expects you maybe to be the highest ranked person in your game. You're not, and you obviously have a job and responsibility around it in addition to the content you were just talking about. What Talk to me a, a little bit about that expectation. Has it changed for you? Like, Do you view that differently now a year, a year after writing that blog? No, it's still the same. If anything, it, the, the dark part of it is, I think one of the other writers said this best, it's like, it's a little sad that I had to hit Challenger to be able to write that article and have it be respected because if I hadn't, it would have just been like, oh, he's just a baddie writing this article, you know? And so in a way I kind of had to jump through the hoop first, but the reality is still the same, right? Like the world's best set designer is very different than somebody who is the world's best, you know, strategy gamer, right? Those are two very different skill sets. Likewise, somebody who's good at balancing might be an incredible mathematician and statistician, but not actually that great at like, managing risk in terms of a strategy game or you know having the time to do that they're different skill sets and a lot of the times players don't realize that at on a whole a lot do right and that's the other thing when we speak about players there's always small pools right like probably 90 percent of players do actually realize that but a vocal 10 percent are like it's mort why isn't he literally rank one and it's like well because that's not how it works the other thing is that behind the scenes People always like to imagine that we have these like secret data metrics that tell us everything, right? It's like there's this secret panel that will tell you the best board and the best items at every turn and I can just follow the statistics. No, that's that's also not how it works. We don't have these magical tools, right? Like it's just game knowledge. Thankfully, of all the games that like devs have to get good at, right? Like a fighting game I think has it much worse. Imagine being a yeah. dev on like Marvel versus Capcom or something like you may not have the dexterity to be that good at it. League's very similar. I, I could probably never hit Challenger in League. I'm just, I'm too old at this point, I guess. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, TFT is a game that's mostly about game knowledge. Uh, and so as long as you have decent game knowledge, you can get high ranked. And so, but again, it's, just, it's one of those things that I think the industry is always going to be fighting against. And I just kind of wanted to put my foot in the sand of like, look, I just did it. I almost burned out doing it. Please don't ask devs to do this. Yeah, it's, you're right like to understand a player experience and i mean it's the same thing as like traditional sports right like to coach a football team doesn't mean you had to be a star star football athlete right like your knowledge of the game is very different than than your knowledge of or your ability to play it yep um and and i think that most people don't understand that and uh it's I always found the harassment like really weird. I, I used to get it and I was like a journalist. I was like, what is this? What is my correlation? My league rank have anything to like do with it? I was like, I'm a, I'm an average player, man. Like that's, that's all right. Like, yeah. I just, I hate to see it, especially cause like what it does is like, we've got some really good people on like the league team or the TFT team who like might be silver. And it's like, I don't need them being harassed and hating their job. Cause they're actually good at their job just because they choose to not 
grind ranked like you know that's just that's not what we want we want people enjoying their job and making the best game so you can have fun and so that harassment is always just counterintuitive and bad and comes from a place of anger but yeah well as someone who did hit challenger i do have to ask you what is uh what are your tips to tft climbing so the trick to TFT climbing really is learn a few different lines, usually like one to two AP, one to two AD, and make sure that you understand them very well so that any particular game, you know, you're out, right? So it's like you can look, OK, if this game with these items, it's probably going this way. I know which way to go. And then you really start to understand because those micro optimizations of like learning where to position your carrier, learning that last whisper is important over death blade can be the difference between you know fifth and third and then from there it's just consistency a lot of people who try to grind rank will go for those first places they'll follow the guides i found a lot more success going for those thirds uh you can be more consistent you never get the eights that take away your 80 lp and make you go yep. insane so <laughs> those are kind of the, the the high level tricks but then from there every player is different right so every player's got their strengths and weaknesses you know, one of the things with all of the Riot games, but especially League and TFT, is that there's, and Runeterra, I would say also, there's a ton of, like, third-party strategy, like, around it, too. So there are, like, actual softwares, and I candidly use Mobilytics more than the others. <laughs> but, you know, there are things like Mobilytics and Blitzapp and Lulchess and etc. that, like, literally, in some cases, you pay to learn to be a better player. I, I don't, but I know some people actually do. They, they're very serious about it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that those are in any what helpful? Oh, uh, I think they are. I think they are because like it's it's kind of sad. Not sad. Sad's not the right word. But basically, to be really good at a game, right, it takes learning. Right, this is true of any game. Right, a fighting game, a MOBA, TFT, whatever. It takes some learning, and a lot of people are looking for the shortcut or the most efficient way to learn. That's just that's true in life. And so, some of those sites are good at teaching you how the game works and what's good and what's not but it's only part of the way right like it's it's a study guide it's not the answer and i think that's the part that a lot of people have trouble distinguishing is that a lot of people see it as the answer not the like study guide and so you still need the practical playing you still need the the actual understanding of the mechanics those are the things that are going to take you above you know your your platinum level yeah i think that that is it's well said because I think that, you know, it's really easy to look at like, what is the really, you know, strong comp right now? And can I force it and build it every single time? And and the game just doesn't lend itself to that, right? Like it, it in a way, every TFT game feels like it's serving you something. Whether or not you notice it or not is a different story, right? Like, do you notice what it's giving you? Yeah. It, or are you just like very stuck in like a, you know blinders on i'm going to do this because i know it works and and that's when you know like if you're really good at the game is like when you watch the difference between say a a rank 200 player and a rank one player like just the way they approach the game is just so different and so masterful and really when you watch the best of the best it's like their ability to be creative around different situations consider lines that people are not open to i always go back to the example i think it was the set six championship or either set six or set seven, I'm blanking, but one of them where there was an augment that had like a very low top four rate. And most of our players were like, I would never pick this augment, but he saw the line, he saw the position, picked the augment, did very well with it and ended up winning the game. And it's like that level of creativity and inspiration is like really what TFT is all about. Walk me through some of the like actual how the game does serve that, like what it chooses to serve you. And, and you know, basically like the the RNG mechanic of it. How is how is that build? How is it determined? I actually haven't heard you all speak about that as much as maybe I think some people would like to hear. Yeah. So generally, if you look at, you know, TFT is a bunch of content, right? There are champs, items, augments, right? It's just it's a whole bunch of content. And essentially the game, you know, shuffles and deals them like a card game. Behind the scenes, if you think about that in terms of outcomes, right? Because to oversimplify it, imagine it's 100 coin flips, right? And like on average, that will be 50 heads and 50 tails. There are going to be games where you get 60 heads and 40 tails. There are going to be games where you, you know, if we assume tails is the bad outcome here. Uh, We have systems in place to make sure there are not games where you have 100 tails and zero heads. Even though it is mathematically possible, 
we prevent the like really bad outcomes, even though they are possible because those just aren't good player experiences. From there, we expect that each of those coin flips is essentially an opportunity for you to make a choice and play around it, right? Like if I have this augment, what other choices should I be making down the tree? And so that leads itself to the player going, every game, there's a different series of choices make the right choices to get a different outcome. I've always visualized it as like a giant decision tree and you sort of know the endpoints, but you don't know the best way to get there. And the navigation through that decision tree is what's interesting. And it might be through a prismatic augment this game, but the next game it might be through a tactician's crown start. And you have to be aware of all of those different paths to be a real master at the game. Yeah, I think that's actually I, I had never thought about it like that. I think that's an interesting perspective of thinking about the, the tree analogy, especially with the augments too, and yep. the way that they've changed the game, the ability to, you know, choose three three different things that are and sometimes they don't feel like they synergize, but that probably means you pick the wrong thing, I would guess. It would it feels it feels best when all three things line up really neatly. Yeah, and it's interesting because the augments in particular, going back to that coin flip analogy. They feel like the quarters, right? They feel like they're the big impactful choice. But oftentimes your brain is sort of tricking you into like, oh, I got a bad augment. I'm in trouble. But you didn't realize you also got your two star champions early and some very good items and you're in a good spot. Right. And so like each outcome is essentially one of those decisions. And it's up to you to sort of quantify like which ones are good, which ones are bad. What's your situation? What should you be doing from there? And so that's why you can see some people, even with bad augments, still turn a game around or with good augments can still lose because they didn't get the right champions, had a bad roll down, stuff like that. Well, specifically with the champion augment functionality that is more recent to the game, Mm -hmm. you know, a specific champion getting a buff. How how often do you find that someone is going to. Maybe you don't roll the champ you got the augment for. Maybe you can't two-star them, right? Like, and, and you have to make the decision. Or maybe you don't get any of the other champions that synergize well with them. And so you have to choose right then and there. Like, do I just ignore this augment and focus on what the game is giving me, what the slot is giving me? Or do I like just try to force this? I think that's been my biggest question lately. Yeah, too. and that one's interesting because if you go into the nuts and bolts of the system, the way it works is the first augment, that's pure random, right? So you could... Maybe have a start that's spell slinger, and then all your augments are like mascot related. And you're like, well, damn, okay, I have to change my start, right? But the later augments, this is where, again, I, I talk about us like tailoring your experience. The later augments actually do play to your board to some extent. So the odds that you got something really bad are basically non existent. You might get something a little suboptimal, but generally it should try to help you now that being said that's one of those systems that requires some really elegant design right is like if you tailor it too much then everyone always gets the augment they want if you don't tailor it enough then everyone's like okay well 20 out of the 28 augments don't work for my board if i don't hit those i lose and so finding that line has been one of the challenges that we're looking for when designing that system but again to your point even if you get a a hero augment that doesn't necessarily fit your board Half of them are what we call support augments, which are just supposed to be the sort of general team buff for your team. So it's up to you to figure out how to slot those in to take advantage of it. So even if you're playing a spell slinger team and you end up with a Samira support, at least your spell slingers are attacking faster and casting faster. And so you might find a way to make that work. Fair. The next thing I want to ask you more is about the hardest design challenge you've found with with TFT. We talked a little bit about this. What do you find is the hardest thing about building this game and maintenancing this game? I mean, the hardest thing is often the the time, basically, because up until recently, like I said, we were developing sets very quickly with a very small number of people. Each set basically had two to three designers. And so a lot of the times, like, let's say you want to do a set mechanic, right? Like, we're going into Dragonlands and we need to come up with a mechanic. And your designer has an idea and you're like, cool, we're going to make dragon eggs. So they take the time, they put it all together. It looks okay on paper, nothing, nothing too bad. And you're like, all right, you play test it. And after play testing it, you're like, this isn't very fun. This isn't quite working. And you try a few iterations and you're like, man, can't quite get it right. It just doesn't feel right. We're kind of out of time. What are we going to do? And so 
more often than not with TFT, that's basically what's happened with every set mechanic is like we have an idea, we try it a bunch, it doesn't quite work, and then we have to come up with something else and last minute get it in. And so getting those mechanics to be fun has been probably one of the bigger challenges. Using the Dragonlands example, we ended up having to cut dragon eggs and switch to dragons, but that was so last minute, that's why you ended up with, you know, three colored Galios and three colored Shivanas, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and a mechanic that, you know, maybe wasn't one of our best, but that's the challenge, right? Is you're trying to make everything last minute. Galaxies was another example of this. Like Galaxies was we had a month left. The previous mechanic wasn't working. And I came up with it off the top of my head and we were like, well, we've got a month go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is why actually, if you remember, like Galaxies didn't actually launch with the set. It came out the patch after. Yeah, uh, it was like us trying to get it caught last minute. So up until recently, that's been the big challenge of just like not enough iteration time. You compare us to like a triple A game where it's like they might be in development for three years or four years or even like another CCG where they get like two years per set. We're just getting to the point where we're like a year ahead, so which is good, but it was hard beforehand. Yeah, it's I didn't think throughout this interview we'd have so many CCG like compa- comparisons, <laughs> but considering I'm like my gaming re- regimen at this point is TFT and Marvel Snap because that's about all I have time to do at this point. It's it's crazy how many similarities that you guys have to CCGs. That is yep. not something I thought at, at all. But I mean, they do have mechanics, right? They do have synergies in a lot of different ways. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah, it's full game design. I think we're going to start taking some audience questions. People have written them out. So this one was from, because I don't see him in the space, but returning listener. I know he listens to the AOD as well. So hello from Dan XOR, which is more how much data or does data drive the decision behind making you or the decision making you and your team do to balance to even the creation of mid set updates and entirely new sets. Curious to hear you expand on this. Yeah, so when it comes to balance, I always call it the trifecta. There are three things that matter when it comes to balance. There's the designer intention, which is like, I want this champion to be a tank. Cool. There's the data around how it's performing. And then there's the player perception around how it's performing. And so all three of those things are important to sort of triangulate where it's supposed to be. A really good example of this was all the way back in set two, we had a five cost named Singed who would run around with poison on his back and he was, he was wildly overperforming, but the data actually showed him as like, eh, he's okay. But player expectation was that he was way player perception was he was too strong and designer intention was he wasn't supposed to be a damage carry. And so it was like, okay, that kind of gives us the hint that we should be kind of nerfing his damage, but keeping his survivability up so that we're fitting all of that. So those are the three things we use for balance. But then when it comes to um, actual like set creation and mid sets and things like that, we have an insights team that what they do is through a combination of surveys and other means, they come up with a set report, basically every set where it's like, hey, here are the things players liked, here are the things they didn't like, here are the things you could iterate on. And then we can take those learnings moving forward and and designing a set, right? So this a great example of this is like shadow items. When we got back our set report from Shadow Items, as you can guess, it was catastrophically like most players hated them and they were confusing and (laughs) led to a lot of problems. And so it was like, oh, okay, cool. Well, now we need to A, iterate away from these very quickly and B, we've learned that Kiss Curse doesn't really work with our audience and resonate with our audience. And we can take that learning as sort of an absolute and move forward to not necessarily make that mistake again. And that's a nice way to make sure that we're actually getting a wide variety of perspectives, not just like the Reddit and Twitter, you know, which can often be a very narrow slice of your right. audience. So that's kind of how we use data to to both develop and balance. Is that impacting too, like what you think in terms of bringing back repeat synergies? I know for a while there were synergies that there aren't as many this set, but ones that came back multiple sets in a row as as well is that is that also from that using that player data yeah yep. we got oftentimes we'll look at like returning champions new champions how do they perform in the data the big thing that might surprise you is like generally when it comes to a set the champs and traits they, they mean something and they're a big part of it but often the mechanic carries a lot of the weight on how players perceive the set that's often what players walk away from as the, their biggest strongest reaction so you know, one or two bad champions won't break a set, but a bad mechanic will destroy a set. Yeah, fair. We had an audience question, I think, uh, from Chef's Kiss 17. I don't know if they're here. If not, I will read it off as well. 
All right. I'm just going to read it. Sorry about that. All right. So the question is, are there any plans to bring back the old sets as a ro rotating temporary mode like they do in the Battle of the Golden Spatula in China? Yeah. So the answer is we really, really want to because they, they've worked really well in Fight for the Golden Spatula as a novelty piece. And we're pretty confident that they will. Right. It's like imagine today we bring back set three galaxy like players will enjoy that for about two weeks. They'll have a lot of fun with that. And that's great. Right. For like uh, an event, uh, like a rotation mode that that's fun. That's a good thing. Right now, the big struggle for us is the tech side of things. We have to figure out a way to build that set, get it all back in order. Because as I mentioned, TFT was built in like five months, not really with the most, uh, you know, the perfect tech. A great example of this is like the item system, right? The items have been constantly being iterated on every set. For us to go back to the item state in set three is actually really, really hard. Um, yep. interestingly enough though, we're, we're still exploring ways to do that. Um, fight for the golden spatula, for example, they just use the current item system. So it's not even like a true reprint. It's more just like, here are the champs and traits with the current rules. Interestingly enough, fight for the golden spatula just launched. They went back to set four, but they have augments that we helped them make. So it's actually set four with augments, which is something that's never been experienced, which is kind of cool. So TLDR, we really want to do it. We've wanted to do it for a long time. It's just, it's going to take a while on the tech side. Are you all also the one ma maintenancing Fight for the Golden Spatula here in the US? Is it the same team or is it a different team? So we work with a partner team over there. Like they put it all together, but we're in close coordination. Yeah. We have weekly meetings. Like I said, they, they wanted to do set four. I was actually the one who was like, hey, why don't you include augments? I think that would actually help it. And they were like, oh, good idea. And so like, you know, again, it's a very close collaboration, but yeah. We had another question too from Kwiatkowski or Kwiatkowski. I'm not sure the pronunciation of that. Sorry if I'm messing it up. This is game devs can be visionaries and in a game like TFT tied to a huge lore and universe. So complex like League of Legends Most, must be awesome, but at the same time overwhelming, which is something we were talking about earlier. How do you and your uh, how do you and the team keep your feet on the gate? I'm trying to figure out what, what they're asking. Uh, how do you and your team keep kind of the foot on the game to keep the game under control? Hmm. I think the question is making sure you're not having too much variance, but. Hmm. Too much variance. I mean, the big thing there is I'll just say like one of the reasons why it can be important to at least play your game and understand the player experience on the game. But yeah, as far as being like a visionary or anything like that, I don't know. I don't look at it quite like that. I look at it more as just like we're just trying to make the most fun game possible. It's also a team effort. That's why it's like it's not just my opinion or anything else. I think a good leader tries to make sure that they're listening to everyone, you know, and that's where like because the, the best ideas can come from anywhere. Most recently, we had a uh, one of our principal designers just said a quote randomly in a meeting and it was so resonant with me. I'm like, I started sharing it with everyone. I'm like, there's something here. We've got to follow this, you know, and so it's just I don't know. I, I know there are game devs out there that are visionaries, but I don't see the TFT team quite like that. Yeah, I think they were also trying to get out a little bit in terms of like staying focused when there's so much product to work with. Ah. Right? When there's like like a ton of lore, which ah. not everything you guys have done has been war related. But, you know, you were talking earlier about the Silco set, right? Yeah. Like so very much clearly themed around arcade. Yeah. So the big thing there is that's where it's like this is where the big team comes in handy. Right. Because like if everyone has a small nugget they're in charge of, then they can really focus on that particular nugget. Right. So like once we pick a set theme, we have artists who are in charge of making sure that world comes alive and we can just go, cool, they're handling that. We have set designers that focus on making sure the gameplay is fun. Cool, they can handle that. And so it's, that's where it's like, again, spreading, dividing and conquering basically is how you make sure you don't lose focus, which is why oftentimes the leaders can in a way kind of go the more mad because it's like they're monitoring all the small sections and making sure they're all doing well. I always used to tease that like, the uh, the the mental swapping, the constant, you know, I'm doing this now. I'm talking about the next set. Now I'm going back to live. Now I'm talking about management can be a little taxing. Um, but again, that's where a big team size can really help. We do have an audience question. Someone that came up to speak. This is from Flavory Jam. Uh, Flavory Jam, would you like to come up and ask your question? First of all, I'm a huge fan, Mort Dog. I really love TFT. Um, my main question was, with Akshan's simultaneous release, if I recall correctly, that's how it worked, 
along with Renata Glass' introduction to the game. I was just wondering how closely tied the teams working on the Rune Terra properties are. Like, who initiated these discussions to get them in the game? Because it isn't quite the same as creating your own dragons, like in set seven, because you still have to have the abilities and models from League that are being developed at the same time. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So the way it actually works, and we were talking about roadmaps earlier, this is why it's really important for every team to have that roadmap. We can usually see League of Legends schedule. Like I know what their next three or four champions are that they're working on, right? Or we know the skin lines they're working on. A really good example of this was when in Galaxies, when we used Astro Bard and Astro Teemo, it's like we knew those skins were coming. We knew the release date of them. We're like, oh, if we can use those, those will be perfect. Let's grab those. Hey, League, just so you know, we're going to be using those. It's going to be great. One of our set designers, Witty, very much because Witty used to be on the uh, League of Legends team. So he'll constantly keep an eye on it. And it's like, oh, we've got to use Akshan for set seven. He's a Sentinel of Light. It fits the theme well design around that. So sharing those roadmaps is really important. And I think for Riot in particular, as we've become multi-game, those roadmaps can often lead to really cool moments and events, right? I think it was the uh, the 10-year anniversary with Around Arcane, right? Where like every game kind of came together. We did set six, League did some stuff, Valorant did some stuff, right? And you can coordinate these big moments that lead to some really cool player experiences and so that's what a lot of our like higher up leadership and coordination is actually focused on, right? Is like, where are these big moments that we can do these things where things tie in together? So yeah, we're always on the lookout for moments like that. And I think there will be more of them for sure because they're some of the most memorable moments. I mean, my follow-up would be to that is, are you going to at any point tap the Valorant universe to put anything in, into TFT? I think that's a common question that gets asked. You know, the answer is maybe someday. You know, it, it could make sense. It could not uh, if, it right, if the right circumstances apply. I mean, we tapped Silco, so I don't think it's out of the question. But I used, I used to work with Anna really closely. So, I, you know, just ask Anna, hey, can we, can we borrow these? <laughs> uh, please don't put Rays in TFT. I think I would rage out. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> already annoying as it is in one game. Let's not make it worse than another. So, yeah, we... I think we uh, will end the night with a question from Prime, our producer. Prime, you want to go with your question? Yeah. So you had mentioned earlier in the interview that this is a very much a new space. Auto battlers kind of only have, have come out in the in the last, what, four-ish years. Yep. I guess kind of open-ended, how do you view your your perspectives and your impact on that genre as one of the first people kind of all in on it? That's an interesting question. You know, it's interesting because for the first year, it was like we weren't sure if it was a fad or not, right? Like we didn't want it to be, obviously, mm. which is why we tried to make the best thing we could. But there was a world where right after we shipped set two, players really weren't enjoying it. It was like, is this the end of the genre? Nothing else was really coming out. You know, was it just a, a come and go? Now, though, it feels like we've shown that there's at least something there. And so I don't know. I see our position as sort of like the industry leader in this, not necessarily the inventor, to be clear, right? Credit goes to the original Dota Auto Chess there. But being able to take that to sort of its its best degree, and I think we've made one of the best products possible. I also think there's some innovation in the like, you know, live service space that we've kind of done as far as like an active community, you know, constant updates, things like that. But I don't know if that fully answered the question, but it's kind of like we're still kind of figuring that out. And hopefully our hope is that like it'll be a genre that will still be around leading 10 years from now is the hope. So, yeah, no, I think open ended question because I I think it's just really interesting that this is very much a a new genre of game that really rapidly uh, became pretty prominent. And to my knowledge, it's one of the first times in the kind of modern streaming era of, of gaming that we've seen a whole new genre come up and, and kind of dominate a space like this. Yeah. And I think the big thing is, you know, we talked about like, okay, we're three years old. What problems are we running into? What are we going to run into when we're five years old, eight years old, 10 years? Like there's going to be new problems that we honestly aren't going to be able to predict as well because we're a new genre, right? We don't necessarily know our genre's strengths and weaknesses. We're trying to figure those out. And that's where, again, drawing those parallels to similar genres can help. But in order to really find them, we have to truly understand our game and how our players interact with it. And that's where, again, I I say like the focus on things like novelty 
is our current theory. And so if, if novelty is your big driver in the genre space, making sure that you innovate there and keep that constantly going is going to be key to your success. That's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, you can find more like it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave a review for the show. It is super appreciated and helps others find the show too. Special thanks to Prem Thotamkara and Sammy Dag for their help with this episode. We'll see you on Friday.